1: From wherever you are, around the world, around the world, welcome to the Circle of Insight, a show that explores the many facets.
0: Welcome, everyone. Well, I have a fascinating guest today. His name is Dr. Mark Solms, S O L M S, and he wrote a great book called The Hidden Spring A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. I can't wait to discuss this. This It's going to be a fascinating discussion. He discovered the brain mechanisms of dreaming. He is director of neuropsychology neuroscience institute at the University of Cape Town, South Africa. He's also an honorary lecturer in neurosurgery at St. Bartholomew's and Royal London Hospital School of Medicine and an honorary fellow at American College of Psychiatrists. I don't think we have a better guest than this, than Dr. Mark Soames. So he's going to tell us a little bit about consciousness. Before we do that, make sure to share and subscribe if you want to support our podcast. Welcome, Professor welcome, Dr. Soames. How are you? Good, thank you.
2: Very glad to be here.
0: Thank you very much for doing this. So this is a fascinating read i 've been doing a lot of reading myself and research lately on, on um, neuroscience, mostly in the unconscious area, but this area seems fascinating as well the
2: consciousness.
0: So tell us a little bit about your book
2: it 's interesting that you 've been doing reading on um, on unconscious mental processes because That's a good starting point for describing uh, this book. Um, We always, uh, when I say always, I mean literally since neuroscience began uh, in earnest in the 19th century, we always uh, saw the seat of consciousness in the brain as being the cerebral cortex. And um, fast forward hundred years to the end of the 20th century, uh, the evidence as you now know from your reading uh, rapidly accumulated for the view that much of cortical processing is in fact unconscious. And um, there are all sorts of cognitive gymnastics that the cortex can perform without consciousness, um, including uniquely human cortical functions like reading with comprehension. You can read something and understand it and it can influence your behavior without you being aware of any experience at all. And this raises the question um, if the cortex can do all of this stuff unconsciously, then why does it ever do it consciously? Um, and uh, and uh, is the cortex intrinsically conscious at all? Uh, our research programs in trying to find the neural basis of consciousness have all been predicated on that assumption, that, that consciousness is a cortical function. Um, so what I uh, argue in this book is that we've been looking in the wrong place. We've known since the middle of the 20th century, 1949 to be precise, that there's a second source of consciousness, which is in the upper brain stem, uh, in an area called the reticular activating system, which is really much more ancient, much more primitive, um, and was a little bit of a shock uh, when we discovered that consciousness is in fact generated um, in this ancient lowly structure that we share with all vertebrates. I mean, literally with fishes. Um, And so we kind of dismissed it and minimized it by attributing to the brainstem merely the power source of consciousness. It's a bit like a television set has to be plugged into the wall before it can work. But that doesn't mean television really comes from the, the, the socket in the wall. That's just a prerequisite for the television to be able to do its thing. And so the cortex was seen as something akin to a television set, which needs to be powered up from the reticular activating system. And that's uh, what's changed. I present evidence of various kinds to show that the consciousness that comes from the brainstem has a quality and a content of its own. It's not merely a, a, a power source for, for, for the background sort of level of wakefulness. And that content and quality is feeling Uh, In other words, what we technically call affect, Uh, affects like, for example, um, emotional feelings like fear and rage, uh, but also bodily feelings like hunger and thirst. These are generated from the brainstem. So this prerequisite form of consciousness, prerequisite for the cortex to be activated, uh, if it has a content and a quality of its own, that suggests that the primordial, basic, elementary form of consciousness is feeling. And why that's important is because feelings are rather simple things by comparison with all of the complexities of cognitive consciousness and reflective self-awareness and so on. So my argument in a nutshell is that if we take it down a notch, reduce consciousness to its basic form, uh, then perhaps we have a better chance of cracking the so-called hard problem of consciousness. How can we incorporate consciousness within our physical conception of of, uh, of uh, the body uh, and indeed of the whole universe.
0: Wow, I generate about 10 questions for me <laughs> and I'm sure Dr. Daniel Dennett, I think he was one of the earlier works
2: of uh, consciousness, he'll be happy about this. I presented a paper on this topic um, in early 2020, January, in Rome uh, and he shared uh, the platform with me and oh, wow. uh, he, he was indeed most enthusiastic about, uh, about the argument. Yeah, I would assume so.
0: Let me um, do this. There's a lot of questions, like I said, popped up. I want to backtrack a little bit and go to um, development. Uh, I was reading some work from Dr. Alan Shore talking about the right side of the brain and the implicit memories and the unconscious. And he um, believes that the left side starts developing more so right around two years of age or something. What are you seeing in regards to consciousness and the development, the reticular activating system? What is all this happening?
2: Um, Well, the reticular activating system and an adjoining structure, which proves also to be very important for the generation of this basic form of consciousness that we call feeling, um, that structure is called the periaqueductal gray, which we abbreviate as PAG. Those structures start functioning in utero. Uh, In other words, well before we are born. They are myelinated uh, and there's evidence of uh, activity um, in, in, in around the end of the first trimester of pregnancy already.
0: Oh, wow. Now, do we know of anything that can? I, it's interesting because
2: I, when, I, when I deal a lot
0: with psychopathology, especially in the criminal world, I'm looking a lot of times at different things, such as uh, endocrine disruptors. And you mentioned earlier the endocrine system playing a role here. Do we see anything in that nature in that area? Anything that can cause uh, damage to it?
2: Um, we're, uh, if you are speaking about, you know, uh, might the st- might stress in the pregnant mother affect the development of these structures? Um, I think, uh, in theory, that's that's plausible. But I have to say, I'm not aware of any research on that topic. So it's it's really uh, it's a it's a hypothetical plausibility. But uh, I'm not aware of any empirical evidence along those lines.
0: That'd be interesting to see how it would affect our consciousness. <laughs> What things we would hide
2: or not hide? Look, um, the the hypothalamus, um, which is in a way the head nucleus of the of the endocrine system, uh, is uh, also deeply interdigitated with the structures I'm talking about. Hmm. Um, and although the hypothalamus is technically not part of the brain stem, functionally it does much the same sort of thing. It's very important for um, emotional and other affective functions for how we regulate bodily needs and uh, feelings have everything to do with bodily needs it's in fact how we become aware of our bodily needs and my basic argument is that that is the original function of consciousness it's for the organism to know how well it's doing within its basic value system which is i must survive and reproduce it's good to survive and reproduce as far as our our um uh, evolutionarily bestowed values are concerned. And the way we we, we come to know that goodness or badness um, is through feelings. This is how we become aware of those values. And, and we, um, we um, modulate our behavior accordingly. If something that we are doing feels bad, we avoid it. If something that we're doing feels good, uh, we approach it. And in this way, feelings form the foundation for choice. Uh, which in turn is the very basis of voluntary behavior.
0: Oh boy! Now we're, now, now you're bringing me to my next question. <laughs> that was a perfect segue to what does it do if it does anything at all to the to the classic Libet study, right? The free will, <laughs> whether the unconscious is faster responding or to the or the conscious mind. What does it do anything at all to that?
2: Yes, well, there are many interpretations of Libet's findings. In case anybody in our our audience isn't uh, familiar with those, what Libet showed is by measuring uh, through EEG, uh, measuring something called the readiness potential, which is is something over the premotor areas of the cortex, he could show that about half a second before an individual consciously decides of their own free will to move. Usually in the experiment, it's a matter of moving a finger that before they make that decision, before they decide uh, of, of their own volition, I'm going to move. A Half a second before that, the ready potential, readiness potential is already rising, uh, thereby showing that, as it were, the brain um, had decided to move uh, before you had. In other words, your decision was in fact unconscious and it's, it's only subsequently that you formulate the conscious intention. And this was meant to be... Um, a disproof of the very idea of free will, although Libert had his own way of interpreting it. My way of interpreting it is that the volitional intentionality, the sort of primal urge I'm going to do something, um, it's perfectly plausible within my framework that that would precede a reflective cognitive version of that. In other words, first there's the impulse, first there's the drive, Uh, First, there's the the spontaneous uh, spark, as it were, which is an affective thing. It it doesn't have to be represented in words cognitively. So I think that delay uh, is is a measure of the delay between the initiation of the impulse and the self-verbalization of it that's how I would understand that, that study. And and it's been replicated in many different ways by, by many others. So there's no question about the observation, uh, but the implications are absolutely enormous. Um, if, 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 if free will uh, is, is really unconscious uh, and doesn't involve you, uh, then how can we call it free will? I um, mean, it sort of undermines the very very idea. But if if we think that you are not uh, um, um, synonymous with your cognitive reflective consciousness, but rather that you also include these much more elementary forms of um, volition, uh, that that if if we incorporate that into our concept of what you are, and for me, that's the bedrock of you, you are literally constituted from feelings in the first instance, Um, then the concept of free will is is, uh, salvaged. That kind of takes me
0: now to, to the world I, I was mentioning earlier. I deal a lot with criminal psychopathology. And I heard this before, and whoever it is who said it out there, I apologize. I can't remember now. But they were talking about a reticular activating system and how it, it can detect a threat. And to kind of jump off of what you're saying right now with Libet, uh the study there and what they found as well as your work. Um, so is it fair to say then the reticular activating system sees a threat that sends the impulse unconsciously to alert us? And that will start rising all the emotions. It goes to the, to the consciousness level for us, how to respond. Is that a fair assessment?
2: Or- yeah. So uh, let me summarize it like this. Uh, we, we have ex- expected uh, states, which means also viable states. Um, you know, I, I expect, for example, to not have somebody lunging towards me with a knife. Um, if they are, that's an error signal. That's not what I expected. So that error signal. Um, gets communicated not to the reticular activating system in the first instance, but rather to the periaqueductal gray, to the PAG. Um, What's important is that there are multiple uh, error signals converging on the PAG at any one point in time. For example, you might be under threat from a knife-wielding maniac, but you might also be hungry um, and you might also need to urinate. Um, So all of those needs, which is what error signals are, their needs, their measures of how far you are from where you um, expect to be, from where your your viable states are. And then the periaqueductal gray uh, has to prioritize those need signals. The need signals in themselves are unconscious. The prioritization process coincides with the business of which of these needs is the most salient right now. In other words, which of these demands upon my mind to perform work? as it were, uh, which of those can be relegated to automaticity? In other words, um, for example, when you're in fear, uh, you might relegate to automaticity the need to urinate and literally wet your trousers. Uh, you just don't think about that. Um, because where the, where the um, attentional focus needs to be, by which I mean where the problem is that you need to feel your way through, where the greatest uncertainty is as to what should I do here? Uh, where you need choice, Um, there you need consciousness. And so fear would be prioritized as the mode, the sort of operating mode of that conscious state and the other needs get relegated to automaticity. That automaticity can entail, um, as I just said now, a bodily process, which then just becomes, you know, purely autonomic, like a release of the bladder sphincter, or it can be relegated to a learnt automatism, uh, some overlearned uh, uh, pr- procedure, which just runs its course. Uh, where, the, where the attentional focus needs to be, as I said a minute ago, um, is where you need to make choices. And that requires consciousness because, con- because choices have to be rooted in a value system. There has to be some way of determining what's better and what's worse. And if you don't have a pre-programmed solution, I mean, I've never had anyone running at me with a knife before, let alone this particular fellow here. I have no idea uh, uh, what to do and and what he's going to do. And so I need to feel my way through the problem. As I, uh, if i make a choice which makes me safer, it feels better, I feel relief. If I make a choice that puts me more in the path of danger, I feel more anxiety. And so this is how we titrate our movements, our actions, uh, on the basis of what feels better and and what feels worse, so 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 there's plenty of room for unconscious processes. Um, it's 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 a matter of prioritization. The consciousness goes with the highest priority need, and the others uh, are, are 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 not not only not necessarily conscious, but actually cannot be conscious. You can't. You can't uh, simultaneously feel all of your needs and simultaneously be making choices about what to do in relation to all of them. Uh, It's, you can only do so many things at once um, and uh, by way of conscious attention, I mean, as you probably know from your reading of the literature on unconscious mental processes, uh, what we call working memory, conscious declarative um, memory, uh, short-term memory, what you're holding in mind consciously, at any one point in time is actually remarkably limited. It's a very small uh, it, has, it has enormous capacity constraints. Um, and that's, that has everything to do with the action bottleneck. You, you can't do everything at once. So you have to prioritize.
0: Yeah, fascinating, fascinating stuff. again, more litany of questions coming at you. <laughs> so I'm gonna take um, it back a little bit, um, back to childhood again. How, how does this all relate to the theory of mind? Was that come around i think it's two and a half three years of age something like that i can't remember
2: now yes um well the uh the, the the most um fashionable uh neuroscientific approach to the theory of mind um begins in terms of its most basic mechanism with so-called mirror neurons and i say so-called mirror neurons because um, I don't mean to imply that there are no such things as mirror neurons. Uh, there most certainly are. But I say so-called in the sense that I don't see how a basic reflex like mirror neurons, you know, which is just an echoing function, I don't see how that can be uh, construed as anything like a subtle a process as theory of mind, which, as you well know, some of us have a theory of mind, some of us sadly don't. Uh, And so we better or worse at this thing. So it's a developmental achievement. Um, It's not not a reflex. If it were a a reflex, we would all all be able to do it. So I believe that the theory of mind arises from processes somewhat more complicated than mirror neurons. And um, if I had to take it down to its bedrock, uh, I I would start from one of the basic emotions. There are basic emotions built into the mammal brain Um, And one of those is play, Uh, odd odd as it may seem, we mammals need to play. Um, uh, uh, And uh, if you deprive a juvenile mammal uh, of half an hour's play today, it will try to play half an hour more tomorrow. And in play, in order to sustain the fun, and it is enormously pleasurable play, children just love to play. uh, They have to learn how to do it. Um, And uh, you have an instinctual built-in rough and tumble thing uh, that all mammals do, um, but, but it, it usually empirically, if you measure uh, uh, rough and tumble play, uh, despite the fact that kids just love to do it and other mammals, the majority of play episodes end in tears. And so uh, if you study how it ends in tears, it has everything to do with learning how to do it. And that has everything to do with learning about mutuality and reciprocity. There has to be something in it for both playmates. Um, that, that's why when play ends in tears, so often it ends with the phrase, uh, I'm not playing with you anymore, you're not being fair, you know, you're not being fair. Uh, you have to take turns, you have to therefore consider the other mind. Uh, you have to consider what, am I going too far? How does this feel for my playmate? Let me, let me pull back here, this is, this is you know, I've, I've crossed some boundary, they, 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 they're not happy. Uh, let, let, me, let me take account of what they need and what they want. And we've discovered a thing called the 60-40 rule, which is that that play can continue as long as the dominant member of the game uh, doesn't seek to be on top or to be the one who's chasing or to be the cop in relation to the robber or whatever, more than roughly 60% of the time. The submissive playmate will continue playing as long as they get roughly 40% uh, of the airtime. And so it's in this sort of learning how to how to take account that you have to take account of the feelings of others in order to sustain play for, for me that's the sort of ground zero of where empathy and theory of mind comes from yeah was, you're, you're heading over to empathy as i was thinking
0: about that a lot too i was um looking at uh i think it was dr simon baron cohen's book on autism and then by the way folks we're talking to dr mark Solmes, Solms. s-o-l-m-s the book is called The Hidden Spring, A Journey into a Journey to the Source of Consciousness. It's a fascinating read into how we think. And this has been a topic that philosophers have been talking about for centuries, about consciousness. But now neuroscience seems to be clearing a lot of things up for us. Um, I want to ask this question just because I, I don't know what order really to ask anymore. <laughs> There's so many questions. But mindfulness, how does that play a role here? We see a lot of this in yoga
2: and therapy. How does mindfulness play a role in the consciousness that you're talking about? Uh, you know, there, there are many different meditative practices, and I'm, I must confess before I say anything further that I'm no expert um, on any uh, of these uh, traditions and any of these techniques. Uh, but the, the the problem is that they seem to achieve, um, they seem to be aiming for slightly different end goals, you know, so mm-hmm. so so one can't uh, sort of lump them all together. But, uh, I would I would think about them, and that said, what I've just said, I, I would think about them in terms of, again, the distinction I'm drawing between cortical consciousness with all the thought processes that go with it, trying to solve life's problems, you know, and so on, as opposed to affective consciousness, which is just the raw state of being. Uh, and, and I come back to what I was saying earlier about the self being literally constituted of feelings. Um, I... I, so, so one way, one sort of stream of these traditions is a matter of shedding all of these thoughts, shedding all of these cognitions, shedding all of this um, um, thinking, um, and just getting down to this non-representational, non-imagistic state of of, of being. Uh, but others among them seem to be, in fact, trying to achieve the opposite, like. Um,
1: Like in
2: in some Buddhist traditions, if not in in all Buddhist traditions, what one is seeking to do is to transcend feeling. Uh, In other words, to transcend need, uh, which the Buddha uh, taught us um, is is the origin of all suffering, that we mustn't have needs. And only if you consider yourself to be a self, uh, then you will have needs. If you can, if you can transcend that, uh, then you can. Tr- but I find it very hard to get my head around these sorts of uh, the, the second. The, you know, when I say in one direction, you're getting rid of cognitions and thoughts. That makes sense to me. I can, I, I can well understand how that's achieved uh, and how that brings about a, 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 a less burdened form of of of, of mindful being. The other way around, to be able to um, escape your own embodiedness uh, and, to, and to escape the affectivity that comes with that, the feelings that necessarily accompany company needs, uh, that must be uh, the opposite sort of thing from what I was saying just now. It's, it must be a very elaborate technique. I, and I say again as an amateur, I know nothing much about it, but you know, it, it can only be an artificial state to me. I don't see how we really can ever escape our own embodiedness. I mean, I, I, uh, I have sometimes said facetiously, surely even the Buddha had to sometimes defecate.
0: <laughs> Let me ask you this. Um, this slide just popped up in my head right now, but when you were talking about the two different consciousness, and we're talking right now the cognition aspect, the affect aspect, um, it reminded me of Plato, because it seemed like 2,000 years ago with his example of the chariots, remember that, and the two horses? Yes. And almost like he knew <laughs> about this 2,000 years ago. I have no idea yeah. how he figured things out back then, but is that a fair assessment, or am I too far off on that?
2: Well, no, and I, I think that it's been said by many a wise person uh, that, that science slowly rediscovers uh, what the poets and philosophers always knew. Yeah, That's a nice way of saying that.
0: Um, I know there's a, there's a couple of things I'm trying to figure out how to go with this because I, I want to definitely talk about affect regulation and how that fits into consciousness. Um, I'm just going to give you a, a heads up. Maybe you'll, you'll start thinking about it now. And then Ian McGilchrist, I don't know if you're familiar with his work in The Left yes, and the Right yes. Brain. And then lastly, I guess this will be my first question, since it's not as related to the other two, is psychedelics. Um I don't know which areas that tap into. <laughs> are you tapping into the cognitive part? Or are we talking into tapping into the affective part?
2: So, um, well, uh, I don't know which uh, of those questions to, to start with. Um, the affect uh, regulation, um, I'll, I'll just say this. Uh, oh, well, I was I'll gonna s- ask you those separately, but. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Okay, yeah. so you want to start with the question about psychedelics.
0: Yeah, I was kind of looking at, you know, Aldous Huxley and these things and these experiments yeah. of recently reaching
2: this trans, transcendental state. What's your okay. take on that? So, so what, what I want to say about that, uh, and, and here I think many people might be surprised to hear this, um, that before I speak of psychedelics, psychoactive drugs, psychopharmacological agents of the kind that are used by, you know, your everyday psychiatrist, Um, they act on neuromodulatory systems which are sourced in the reticular activating system. So this is, is, uh, you know, good evidence for what I was saying earlier, that the reticular activating system is not just some sort of blank power supply. Uh, If it was, it would only interest anesthetists, um, but psychiatrists uh, who are tinkering with the very uh, neurochemicals the source nuclei of which are in the reticular activating system are clearly trying to alter affective states, emotional states. Um, So, for example, serotonin, uh, which is sourced in the RAFE nuclei, the RAFE is part of the reticular activating system. So antidepressants uh, act on uh, neuromodulators sourced in in the reticular activating system. Likewise, antipsychotics uh, act on dopamine, uh, which is sourced in the ventral tegmental area another part of the reticular activating system. Some anxiolytics act on what you in America call norepinephrine, we call it noradrenaline. Um, and that's sourced in the locus ceruleus complex, again, part of the reticular activating system. So, so psychoactive drugs, uh, the ones that form the literally the mainstay of psychopharmacology um, are acting on reticular activating modulatory systems. Um, When it comes to psychedelics, uh, and in fact, to recreational drugs more broadly, um, some of them act also on, like, for for example, MDMA acts on serotonin, on serotonin receptors. Um, But some of them act on on cortex. Um, So it depends really which psychedelic you're talking about. Uh, if If I was to generalize, I would say, because you must remember also that the They act on the receptors, not on the source nuclei. But in cortex, uh, the the intrinsic neurotransmitters are are glutamate um, and uh, GABA uh, and aspartate. These are not these are not modulatory. Uh, These are these are message passing molecules. And uh, very broadly speaking, psychedelics act on those act at that level um, of brain functioning, and the phenomenology. Uh, likewise reflects that. You know, you have perceptual disturbances, changes changes in your sense of time, changes in cognition, changes in insight, changes in self-awareness. These are cognitive things. They're dealing with higher levels of consciousness, whereas antipsychotics and anxiolytics and antidepressants, they're dealing with the, the raw feelings uh, for the most part. So, Generalizing, I have to generalize because you know there's, there's no such one thing as psychedelics and one thing as as, uh, as psychopharmacological drugs. But very broadly speaking, I would divide them that way.
0: Interesting. Interesting. That's perfect. That leads me into my last few questions here. Again, folks, Dr. Mark Solms, SOLMS, get the book, The Hidden Spring. Uh, Dr. Solms, so I guess what, I'm going to go over to the area of affect regulation. We're talking about affect consciousness. Um, I'm referring again back to Dr. Shore's work, how it's developed with the mother, the gazing, the touch and all that. How does that play a role in
2: affect consciousness? Well, it plays a, a big role. So we are, we are born with innate needs, um, some of which are regulated autonomically all our lives, like blood pressure and things like that. They never play any part in mental life. Um, others, things like hunger and thirst and sleepiness and you know uh, bodily needs uh, they they generate these simple raw affects uh, but when it comes to emotional needs uh the the the, the oh, when i say sorry let me go back to bodily needs when i say that they oh i just lost you um the um so when it comes to bodily needs uh you know the feeling of hunger or the feeling of thirst or the feeling of the need to urinate or the need to sleep or whatever, we, the, the reflexes that we are born with as to how to meet these needs pretty much do the job. You know, you don't, it's not that difficult to learn how to eat and how to drink and how to urinate and so on. But when it comes to our emotional needs, we are there too born with, as it were, reflexes. In fact, they are. we call them instincts. Um, those instincts only take us this, thus far, so far. Like, for example, the kinds of things that you were talking about in relation to Alan Shaw's work. Um, we have attachment needs. Uh, within the first six months, we form an attachment bond, and then we need to keep that caregiver near to us. Um, it's, and we have an instinct for doing that when she, it's usually she, sorry to say, uh, when she separates from us uh, or, or becomes separated from us, Uh, then is an instinctual response, which is to cry out. We call it separation distress vocalizations. Uh, Mama! And to search for her. So the the, the child searches for the mother and cries out like this. Now, um, I'm very glad to have been born with that instinct, you know, not to have had to reinvent (laughs) that wheel for myself. But uh, as any toddler soon learns, it doesn't always work. You know, sometimes you cry out for mommy and she still doesn't come because she's got her own needs and she's got other things on her mind other than you. And so we have to learn from experience what else to do. Uh, We have to supplement our instinctual responses with learnt responses. And those have to be individualized. Those have to be context dependent. It depends on what sort of environment you're born into, what sort of caregiver you have, um, and so on. So it's that process of supplement, so so let me put it this way again. We have needs, which we feel. Then we have these innate responses, which is how to meet that need. In other words, how to regulate that feeling. Um, And when it comes to emotional needs, that's hard. Uh, It's hard to learn how to uh, meet your emotional needs. So that's the great task of mental development is learning how to regulate your emotions, which is the same thing as to say, learning how to meet your emotional needs, Um, and it's not only a matter of learning to meet each one of your emotional needs, because we have many, Uh, it's also a matter of reconciling them with each other. So, again, to take the example of attachment bonds, which we're talking about, um, we have another need, emotional need, which is to get rid of frustrating impediments, Um, And and you can see why this is biologically important. If somebody's getting between you and what you need, something's frustrating you, you have an innate uh, instinctual response as to how to deal with that, which is called affective attack, you know, attack and destroy. Now, what if your mother is frustrating you or your caregiver, it certainly happens a hell of a lot. It's almost inevitable (laughs) that your caregiver is gonna frustrate you. So now you have a conflict between on the one hand needing to keep her close to you forever and always, and on the other hand to get rid of her when she's frustrating you. Um, and so these sorts of conflicts make the, the learning how to meet our emotional needs, which I say again means how to regulate our emotional feelings, it's the great task of mental development. And so it's that's how uh, I, 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 I link what i'm speaking about which is the basic feelings themselves and what they stand for what they represent what work they're doing in the mind uh, how that relates to the top-down regulatory business of learning uh, which which includes eventually once uh, the, the cortex becomes fully operational being able to act virtually in other words to think To imagine, if I did this, that would happen. If I did this, that would happen. You feel your way through all of these possible scenarios in the safety um, of the virtual reality of thought. And all of this, uh, it has a lot to do with the frontal lobes, which Alan writes about so much. All of this is in the service, ultimately, of these much more basic processes, which uh, in the title of my book, uh, I I speak of as the source of consciousness, the origin.
0: It's fascinating, it's fascinating when you start putting all these things together. In your book, again, it deals with something that's 18 plus. It applies to every culture. It's universal. We saw that with Paul Ekman's work with the seven universal emotions and the same thing here with you now again. um, It really doesn't matter, does it?
2: Yes, but the important point uh, uh, to to add to what you've just said, which is absolutely true, Uh, Ekman, Panksepp, the basic emotion theorists, uh, the the, the sort of thing I'm I'm, uh, Uh, focusing on is these basic, innate, natural kinds of need, both bodily and emotional ones. Um, But as soon as you start speaking about learning from experience, how to regulate them and how to deal with the conflicts between them, then they become individualized and socialized and enculturated. And so people like Lisa Feldman Barrett, um, who's perhaps the best known theorist who speaks about the, the social construction of emotions, I think she's talking about that 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 secondary process, not the not the um, not the basic needs themselves, but rather how we learn through experience in our families, in our cultures, in our societies, um, and and then you get you know quite remarkable differences. But that doesn't detract from the fact that the original natural kinds are pretty stereotyped.
0: I know this might be a, um, now thinking about it with Ian McGilchrist, a philosophy. Um, Because I don't know, and for him, the world has gone too far left in the sense of the brain, (laughs) too much to the left side of the brain now. Um, And I hate to be reductionistic, but it's logical, analytical, limited in its capacity compared to the right brain, as he puts it. I'm paraphrasing what he said, folks. Um, But as he puts it, more creative. And I think the affect is also present in that right side of the brain. Do you think that's something that society is struggling with, you mentioned it a little bit with Buddha, but do you think that we're tr- trying to control this affect consciousness and maybe we can't?
2: Um, well, the, the, the view, what I like about McGilchrist's view uh, is is more about the kinds of attentional focus uh, that we have in the right hemisphere is kind of open to experience. It's sort of ready for something unexpected and it's a surveying the whole sort of scene whereas the left hemisphere is kind of drilling down on some uh, um, task at hand. I'm I'm, I'm trying to solve this problem, I'm focusing on this, and I'm doing it in terms of numbers and and words and and, and the like. And and, and an openness to to, uh, the bigger picture uh, and seeing the context. Uh, I I think that it's in this sense that the right hemisphere is more emotional. You know, that that it's, 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 it's... In in, in a sense, you could say the left hemisphere is more involved with defensive processes, um, with shutting out uh, that which we don't want to focus on, that which we would rather not know about, Uh, and an openness to that. I think, you know, any scientist knows you always have to be ready to be wrong. You always have to uh, be ready to recognize that you're going down a rabbit hole um, and uh, that, in fact, the evidence isn't fitting uh, with uh, the way that you're construing the world. And it's that readiness, willingness to exit the echo chamber and uh, reassess uh, the, the bigger picture uh, that I think that uh, in this, in, 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 you know, I agree uh, that uh, there's, a, there's an imbalance uh, in, 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 in a large part in Western cultures. Um, and to that extent, uh, I agree with Ian McGilchrist. Do you see hemispheric differences in your
0: uh, emotional, your affect consciousness as well?
2: Oh, well, of course, there there are hemispheric differences. But here again, we are talking about the learning processes, the cognitive processes, Mm. the basic affects themselves. I think a very interesting um, illustration of the point I'm making here is that in patients in whom the corpus callosum has been surgically severed uh, for the treatment usually of intractable epilepsies, uh, but also in patients who are born without a corpus callosum, which surprisingly is not that rare. a a, a colossal agenesis, it's called. Uh, You you can show, you can present information to the one hemisphere, uh, of which the other hemisphere is unaware, like that famous experiment by um, Roger Sperry, uh, where he showed pornographic images to the right hemisphere um, of a patient, um, and her left hemisphere, her speaking hemisphere, didn't have access to what's going on in the right hemisphere. Nevertheless, she blushed and giggled. And so Sperry says to her, why are you so uncomfortable? And she says, I don't know, but that's some machine you've got there, Dr. Sperry. Um, And uh, what I'm pointing to is the fact that her left hemisphere felt the embarrassment. Remember, the information only went to the right hemisphere, but the affective response from the brainstem of which we do not have two, there's one brainstem down there uh, modulating both hemispheres, um, that the brainstem response of, of, an, of a feeling of embarrassment and awkwardness is broadcast to both hemispheres. It's just that the left hemisphere doesn't know why it's feeling like that. So that's a good illustration of how the source of consciousness, the, the, the feelings themselves um, are not are not um, uh, uh, hemispherically generated. They're generated way down below in the brainstem. Fascinating stuff. I could keep you here all day.
0: <laughs> I guess my la- one of my last questions would be, um, What was the biggest surprise in your journey? Something that really stood out to you, probably a lot of them in this this journey, but anything that stood out to you say, wow, I can't believe that happened or this is not what I expected? Well,
2: um, I'll tell you one. I've I've had several big surprises, (laughs) but one was my my, uh, becoming familiar with a condition called hydranencephaly. Um, and this is not to be confused with hydrocephaly. Hydrocephaly is quite a common condition. Hydranencephaly refers to a condition where children are born without any cerebral cortex, um, and so the anencephaly refers to no cortex, and the hydran refers to the fact that there's a fluid, cerebrospinal fluid, instead of cortex. So these are children. When you do an MRI scan of their of their of their heads, uh, you see literally, you know water where there should be cortex uh, it's a, it's empty i mean a vast black empty space and uh, given the cortical theory of consciousness that we've all subscribed to for so long for for you know for, for literally centuries um, it is a shocking experience indeed to encounter and interact with these children because they are conscious not only are they conscious in the sense of waking up in the morning and going to sleep at night, uh, and also sadly in the sense of having absence seizures where they lose consciousness and then regain it. Uh, but emotionally, they are emotionally responsive. They show all the basic emotions we were discussing earlier, fear and rage and and and, and joyful, playful laughter uh, and so on. These kids with absolutely no cortex, it's a shocker to, to, to see. And then you realize, my word, we've got something fundamentally wrong here about our 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 sense of what consciousness is and where it comes from in the brain? Yeah, that would be
0: would be a big shocker. <laughs> it actually kind of reminds me a little bit of um, Dr. Bruce Grayson. I don't know if you're familiar with him, he wrote no. a book about near-death
2: experiences. Oh, I know, I know of uh, I know of Urban um, Alexander's book, but I don't know this this book.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. That it kind of well, I guess I'll ask you for your final thoughts on that. Is he, according to him, when he was, the individuals that he saw were technically dead, but they were still able to be conscious of conversations that were happening outside of their realm. So, do you, yeah. what do you say about that? The consciousness outside of us—is it always there? Do we have to be alive to even be conscious?
2: Well, uh, <laughs> what this what this boils down to is actually a rather important uh, set of ethical implications of. Um, what I've been uh, saying. Uh, when I say that consciousness is not a cortical process, that um, fundamentally consciousness is generated in the brainstem, uh, then that means that patients who we declare brain dead uh, by virtue of surface electrodes through the, uh, you know, uh, the, through the skull, uh, you're measuring what's going on in cortex for the most part. Uh, you're, you're certainly not able to measure what's going on in the periaqueductal gray with an EEG. Um, and so we'll declare a patient brain dead um, on the basis of an of a outdated cortical theory of consciousness. Um, and it's, uh, it's not only a matter of brain death, it's also a matter of coma and so on. I think we really need to, uh, we need to deeply rethink um, some of the ethical decisions that we take um, about the sentience or the lack of it um, in our patients. Uh, if if we're basing uh, those uh, assumptions uh, on the uh, on, on the notion that consciousness uh, is synonymous with cortical functioning, uh, I mentioned hydranencephaly. Um, yes. I uh, remember a, a really a very uh, upsetting conversation with a psychiatrist colleague of mine in Australia, uh, whose daughter was hydranencephalic. Um, and she needed an operation on her skull which had a malformation Uh, and the neurosurgeon said to her we don't need to administer an anesthetic because your child has no cortex Uh, she can't feel anything and that's just plain not true Um, and and also these children are raised as if they are vegetative that was the word we used to use uh, for non-responsive wakefulness Um, and um so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, know, you severely emotionally neglect these children, treating them as if they are not sentient beings, where as, as I told you uh, from my own experience uh, and from very careful studies by Bjorn Merker um, and Dave Schumann, uh, who studied lots of these kids, uh, you know, if you rear them on the assumption that they are conscious, uh, then, you know, you see they are fully conscious, feeling beings, um, not fully conscious, sorry, I, I retract that. They are fully feeling beings. Um, and when it comes to the ethics of, you know, of, of, um, of end of life, and so on, um, I, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say this has important implications.
0: So much more to learn. So much more to learn. Dr. Solms did a great contribution. Thank
2: you so much again for being here. Thanks, Carlos. I've enjoyed it very much, even though something weird happened to my screen and I no longer can see you. It's a disembodied (laughs) connection to you in more ways than is usual. (laughs) Folks, again, the book, The Hidden
0: Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness, Dr. Mark Solms, S-O-L-M-S, highly recommend the book. It's a fascinating read. It'll probably change the way you view the world. Again, if you want to support our podcast, share and subscribe.